go in the presence of the ark, which is the presence of the Lord. He had to fast, he had to wash himself, and a host of other rituals. What the elders are suggesting is, hey, go get that ark that we're not allowed to be in front of, that we're not allowed to go to, go get that ark, bring it with us, and we're going to win that battle. It was blasphemous, and it shows us two things. Here's what it shows us. It shows us how little Israel respected God and the things of God, number one, and it shows us how much they misunderstood God and the things of God at this point and stage, right? What they're suggesting is sacrilege. They want to use the most sacred thing that God gave them for their own purposes. It's like me getting barbecue from Country Boy, having my face covered in delicious barbecue sauce and grabbing the Declaration of Independence to wipe it, and then 10,000 times worse than that, right? Like, American citizens are like, what are you doing, you crazy person? It's 10,000 times worse than that. They didn't respect God, and the reason they didn't respect God is because they didn't understand him out of their own ignorance, not because God didn't reveal himself to them. They're treating the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, like a lucky charm, like a lucky rabbit's foot that they can put in their pocket, and ultimately, they're attributing power to an inanimate object, right? Look what they say in verse 4. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant. Pause. Why? They're going to tell you that it, the ark, the antecedent of it, that the ark may come among us and that it, the ark, may save us from the power of our enemies. Did God tell Israel to make the ark of the covenant? He did. Did God use it to communicate his presence and his power to them? He did. But the ark itself is just a man-made box. It's not a cage for God that you can trap him in it and if you bring it, he's with you. It has no power in and of itself. It's just a man-made box. And yet Israel is convinced that if they bring this ark with them into battle, it, the ark, will save them. That's what they think. That's like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute and thinking, you know what? I'm going to be fine. I got this cross necklace and God's all-powerful and this cross necklace is going to save me. Cool. My response to you is, what do you want me to say at your funeral? But that, that's not faith. That's just craziness. It's insane. And verse 4 seals the deal for just how far they've fallen. They get the ark, and then we, the readers, are told that along with them, we're specifically told that Eli's worthless sons, the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, are there. They're with them. They're with the ark of the covenant. And that says two things to us. The first is, it's an indictment. The priests, Joshua 7 wasn't that long ago from this scene right here. The priests, the ones who should have told the people, hey, we got defeated because we're in sin. They should have led the people in repentance. Instead, the priests are like, yeah, bring that ark. Let's do it. But second, it's also setting the scene. The author is setting the scene because what did Samuel prophesy would happen to Eli's sons? They would die on the same day. Guess what's about to happen next, right? So it's setting the scene for us. I think I did it. That is what is happening in verses one through four. You guys get the passage? Cool. And what can we glean from it? Uh, I think a lot, hopefully a lot. I heard a pastor once describe um, a temptation, something a lot of Christians fall into. He said that we sometimes treat God like a waiter at a restaurant, was the illustration he went to. We sometimes treat God like he's a waiter at a restaurant. And uh, here's what he meant. When I go to a restaurant, I'm sitting with my family, with my friends. We are sitting at the table. Who am I there with? My family and friends. And we're enjoying a meal together. We are talking with each other. We're sharing our thoughts. We're laughing. We're making plans for the future. You know what we should do next summer? We should, whatever. 
Where's the waiter in this picture? Who cares? I'm not there to see the waiter. If the waiter's doing his job well, I won't really even notice that he exists. Most of the time, I just ignore the waiter. I'm not rude to the waiter by ignoring him. I just, he's over there. The only time I speak to the waiter is when I need something. Can, uh, can we get some dessert? Can you uh, refill my water, please? Can I get the bill? Can I get the bill? The waiter doesn't sit at the table with us. I'm not there to see the waiter. He's not a part of our conversation. He's not a part of our plan making. He's not a part of this enjoying fellowship. He's there in case I need something, right? That's how it goes. And the pastor said, sometimes we treat God like that. Sometimes we can treat God like that, where he's not a part of our lives, not really. We don't intentionally go to spend time with him. We don't ask God for his thoughts on the conversations we're having in our own heads in our own hearts. We don't consult with the king of wisdom about our plans for our future and what we want to do on this or that day. By and large, we'll ignore him. Glad to forget that he even exists until I need something. Then it's call over the waiter. Hey, over here, God. Yeah. Hey, God, can you give me some more money, please? <laughs> I asked nicely, right? Hey, God, I ate 19 dumplings and I have a tummy ache. Can you fix it real quick? You know, it's my fault. I did it, but hey, God. Hey, God, can you fix my marriage that I've been breaking for the last 26 years? Could you do that real fast? I'd really appreciate it. I would. Oh, oh, and can you convince my wife that it, it's all her fault? Like all the issues we're having, it's, it's her fault. Yeah, that'd be great. If you do it quickly, happy to give you a big tip in the offering box. I know how underappreciated you are, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I call this first point, God's not a lucky charm because we don't get to tack God onto whatever we want to do. That's not how it works. When we use God's name, when we use God's word, when we use his grace, his gifts, and his gracious provision incorrectly and wrongly, we prove, number one, that we don't respect him and that we don't understand him. That's what's happening there. Y'all, what I'm saying is God is not the waiter. We are. We exist to serve him. It's not the other way around. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Israel wanted something. They wanted to go to battle against the Philistines. Where is God in the beginning of this description? He's not even mentioned. They're not thinking about God. They get their tail whipped, right? And only then, when they failed, when they couldn't do it on their own, did they even bring God to the forefront of their mind. God was a waiter in the background, they got their tail whipped. Waiter, waiter. But it's worse. They take this ark, <laughs> this ark of the covenant, a sign of God's grace and his presence, and they treat it like it's a box, a cage for God, that if they bring it with them, God is bound to help them. He doesn't have a choice. We got him. We got our lucky leprechaun. He's with us. We're going to win. That's how they see it. And what they did is they took splinters of the truth, splinters of the truth that God loves them, that God is able, that he has all power, that he promises to be with them. They took splinters of God's truth and they assembled the little splinters together to make an idol of their own fashioning. Splinters, little bits of truth, and they put it together to make their own idol. And we'll soon see uh, that it didn't work out well for them. But ultimately, they put their faith, they put their trust in a symbol of God, an idea of God, and not in God himself. Uh, why did they do that? 
because you can control a symbol. You can't control God, right? You, you can bring the symbol with you. You can bring it to whatever you want to do. And like Tim Keller has said, I, I remember this verse for the last eight years. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Say amen or ouch. The point is, when we see God as our waiter, we believe that he exists to do our bidding. And so long as we speak kindly to him and we tip well, and we promise to write a five-star review on Yelp, I'll tell people that you're really good to me. It's his job to do whatever it takes to make us happy when God is our waiter because the customer is always right. That's how the saying goes, when God is the waiter. And the result is that we end up creating an idol, an idol of our own making, and we worship that idol, which is just an idealized version of ourselves, an idol that just happens to where God always wants exactly what we want. And God values exactly what I value. And God votes just like I would vote. And he hates just what I would hate. What a coincidence. Me and God, we're like the same. And like Keller's saying, uh, if the God in your head, if the God who has revealed himself to us in his word never disagrees with us, if his purposes and my purposes are always the same and my passions are his passions and my purposes are his purposes, if that's always, you're either really, really holy and praise God for you, or you're not worshiping God at all. You're worshiping yourself under the idea or the symbol of God. And of course, we'd never admit that, right? We're going to shape and fashion and form this idol into the shape of a cross. We'll put stickers on it of a Jesus fish eating a Darwin fish so we prove that God's truth triumphs over all. We'll recite the Lord's Prayer to it. We'll sing Christian songs to it. But in the end, like Israel did with the ark, uh, we're putting our faith, our trust, in a symbol of God, an idea of God, but not God himself. Why would we do that? Because we can control a symbol. <laughs> it's domesticated. We can bring it with us wherever we want, on whatever we want, uh, and we can get that symbol to do our bidding. And we can use it to justify whatever cause we want to. Uh, we'll bring the Ark of the Covenant out to parade our causes as if they are God's causes. It's a tool for us, just like the Ark of the Covenant was for Israel. And I know you might be thinking that I'm describing a phantom problem. You might be thinking, no one does that. Who does that? And my answer to you is, everyone does that, me included. I'll start with the obvious candidate. Politicians, particularly Republicans, do that all the time. They do it all the time. They use an out-of-context Bible verse. They use Christian symbols or whatever to justify or to ignorantly try to bind God to their own ideas and agendas. You don't believe me? I can give you a million illustrations, but here's a few. Uh, it was a few years ago, former Attorney General Jeff Sessions used Romans 13 to say that God approves of the government separating immigrant parents from their children. Romans 13. The God who tells us to be kind and welcome in the sojourner stranger, he used a really out-of-context Bible verse to say that God is approving of that. Uh-uh. Or who remembers President Trump at Liberty University trying to endear himself to evangelical Christians? And he said, uh, two Corinthians. Does anyone remember? Instead of second Corinthians, right? Like, he didn't know the Bible. You guys like the Bible? I like the Bible too. They asked him, uh, what's your favorite Bible verse? All of them. All of them. All the verses. <laughs> or it just so happened when he was trending low in his poll numbers with evangelical Christians that he takes a picture with the Bible. The Bible's upside down. That's fine. But I'm low with them. I'll take a picture with them. Republicans do it all the time. But you know what? 
So do Democrats. The day after Trump took the picture with the Bible, guess who else took a picture with the Bible? Nancy Pelosi in her office, serenely sitting there with an open Bible and just taking candid shots of her. And she said, I wish that man would just read it and do what it says, right? Or last year with the catastrophe in Afghanistan, President Biden got up in front of the nation and quoted Isaiah 6, where God says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. Lord, send me. And he used that verse to talk about the American government sending troops to Afghanistan and how the soldiers are willing to accept the call of America. America standing in the place of God. Isaiah 6 has nothing to do with Afghanistan. Whew. Sorry. Politicians, our elders, our tribal leaders, do it all the time. They drag the symbol of God out into the public to parade their causes as if they're God's causes. It's their agendas. It's, they're just trying to baptize it in Christianese and Christian symbolism and the idea of God. And the worst part is so many Christians buy it. Why? Because that politician claims to be a Christian because he wears a cross on his lapel because after making that announcement, he, he prayed, uh, we should know better, but like Hophni and Phinehas, we see the Ark of the Covenant being paraded around and we go with it because he's on our team or you know, I actually agree with that purpose, <laughs> whether or not God's involved in it. You might not be surprised to hear that politicians do it, but so do churches. So do churches. I'll give you one. I'll never forget, uh, my buddy pastored a large church in the South, uh, and they were in terrible debt. They were in terrible debt because they decided to build the biggest and baddest building they ever could, really as a leg up, like competition against all the other churches that are down the street. And I called that uh, the field of dreams, church growth strategy. If you build it, they will come. You know, get the comfy seats, the big screens and all the rest, and you hope that it will fill up. And of course, God approved. He was really happy about their plans to build this $27 million facility. God was really into it, according to them, and they did a sermon series on it. And they, you know, had worship events and prayer nights for praying for God's provision for it. And yet, after the building was done, <clears throat> they were really struggling to keep the lights on. And the debt was crippling on that church. They were defeated in a battle right? And they should have sought God in repentance and asked the congregation for forgiveness, for misleading them, saying, hey, we thought this was God's thing. It turned out just to be our thing. Sorry about that. Instead, they uh, grabbed the Ark of the Covenant and paraded it out to save them. They did a sermon series on uh, that God hates debt. Ironically, the church is $27 million in debt. And then I'm not joking about this. Ashley is my witness, and God is here today. They used an obscure passage, 1 Chronicles 29. I'm not talking about Bobo church. I'm talking big time church. They used 1 Chronicles 29, where David calls Israel to donate their jewelry and their treasure for the building of the temple. They used that to do a fundraiser. It's like a Wednesday night, and they invited pawn shops from all over the cities to set up booths in their state-of-the-art gym, and the church showed up on a Wednesday night to pawn their rings and bracelets and necklaces and gold, and they would get money from the pawn shop right there in the church building, and then they would give the money to the church. I mean, to God. I'm sorry, let me get my terms right, right? crazy. And I see it all the time where churches are invoking God's name and his word to justify and promote their projects and their agendas and their values. Listen for it. You'll hear it a lot when there's a building campaign, a new facility, but it happens even more in right-leaning and left-leaning churches during an election season. During election season, God has a lot to say about a particular politician, one way or the other, right? Like God's kingdom is on threat level midnight and 
whoever becomes the president in the next four years is going to make or break the kingdom of God. Churches really tune it up there. Like I said, we worship an idealized version of ourselves. When we do that, it just so happens that God always wants exactly what we want. He values exactly what we value. He votes just like we would vote. He hates exactly who we would hate. When God exists to serve us, our causes are always his causes. They're one and the same. That's how it goes. Politicians do it. Churches do it. And you ready for this? <gasps> Individual Christians do it too, including me. Including me. Do you know how many times I have caught myself praying, God bless this food and may it nourish and strengthen my body over a donut? <laughs> over a donut, y'all. God bless this food. Make it nourishing and strengthen my body. Tell me that's not trying to use an idea of God to accomplish my purposes, my wisdom. Use this donut to strengthen my body. In Jesus' name, amen. I am an idiot. I mean, that's an innocent one, but I've seen Christians wanting God's confirmation and his blessing on big decisions that they know are foolish. That they know, it's just a no-brainer, right? Like, yet they'll pray about it, hard about it. Uh, God, should I buy this house that I can never possibly afford? Should I enter into a mortgage that will sink me? Should I, God? Should I accept this job that's going to take me away from my family for 120 hours a week, but I'll be able to buy uh, that truck that my wife has always wanted? Should I take that job, God? God, should I? Date that nice Jehovah's Witness boy over at the coffee shop, should I? You know, I'm talking about things that don't even need to pray about. I know we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Some things you don't need to pray about. It's like, nope, easy. And yet they do. And then they find an obscure Bible verse way out of context and feel justified in pursuing the thing they wanted. You know why? Because God spoke to them and they do it. And then when their situation falls apart, they ask the same question the elders do in 1 Samuel 4. Why did God allow this to happen to me? They used the idea of God to justify their plans, and then they blame God when they have to experience the consequences of their own decisions. That's how it typically goes. I've seen that way more times than you can imagine. I've seen Christians who are gossiping and slandering and speaking hatefully. They're speaking sinfully about those wokes, those alt-right, those gays, those whoever, neighbor, the Christians, they're gossiping, slandering, hating those people for their sin and their ignorance, but mm, God is pleased with me. I go to church regularly. I own 12 Bibles, one calfskin, and we have a sign in our kitchen that says, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. We're in the clear. We've got the symbols all around us. Uh, I've seen husbands take the verses that God gives us to teach us how to lead our household well in godliness and use those verses to dominate, control, and abuse their wives. I've seen wives abandon their marriage because they don't feel love anymore and they don't want to fight for it. And they find an obscure Bible verse, God spoke to them, they leave their husbands, they marry another man, and then they claim it was God's will because the second marriage turned out better than the first and God brings good from all of it. I could keep going and going and going, but I don't want to. Uh, so let me just state it like this. Let's not parade our causes as God's. Let's not parade our causes as if they're God's causes. And be clear, God's purposes should always be our purposes. God's purposes should always be our purposes, but our purposes are not always God's purposes. Amen? 
And that is just how it goes. That should be a no-brainer. So if there seems to be something that you're really passionate about that has nothing to do with God, I don't care if, if it's folly, if it's perversion, if it's uh, making financially unwise decisions, I don't care if it's a politician you're really jazzed about that you think would be really good for God's kingdom or whatever, if, if God has nothing to do with it, just like he does with Israel, he gives you the freedom to do it. Go after it. And he gives you the freedom to experience the consequences of your doing. He does. The consequences of stupidity. So if you want to do something sinful or something stupid, go ahead and do it. You may not like how it turns out. You may not like the fruit of the seeds you're sowing, but you're free. Sin away. Just don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't drag God's name into it. Don't parade your cause as God's cause. When we use God's name, his word, his truth, his grace, his gifts for our purposes, when we use them incorrectly, we prove we don't respect God, no matter how many things in our house say we do, and we don't understand God, no matter how many Bibles we have, how many songs we know by heart. When we use the things of God incorrectly, uh, we really fall off the map. And sometimes the result of that ignorance is harmless, maybe even funny, a lot of rain in a city. Uh, but other times, the results can be catastrophic, and that's what happens in the next installment of our passage. But for now, to end our time, I want to ask these two questions, and there they are. When we think of our relationship with God, which one of us is the waiter? And the second question is this. When God's word disagrees with us, who wins that argument? Those are my two questions. Who exists to serve whom? Who is the sun in the solar system of our relationship? Who revolves around whom? Um, whose passions? Whose causes? Whose desires? Whose truths? My truth. Whose truths are weightier? God's or mine? Uh, and if I'm honest with you, the Holy Spirit showed me this week that I had a pretty hard time admitting my answers to those questions. And so I'm going to stop preaching here. And I'm just going to leave these questions with you. You can reflect on them and pray through them this week. Or not, the choice is yours. Uh, but either way, let's not parade our causes as God's causes. Let's know him for how he has revealed himself to be and adjust to him and not the other way around. It doesn't work out. Uh, that said, I'm praying.